You know, when we're little, when we're kids, we really have no clue what's going on, do we? And yet all of us, when we're younger, we have these dreams, we have these plans in mind for ourselves. I remember the first thing that I ever wanted to be, and I phrase it this way because this is what I used to tell people, I wanted to be an army guy. That's what I wanted. I wanted to carry the gun, I wanted to shoot the bad guys, I wanted to do the, the cool stuff that I saw on G.I. Joe, which was a television show that none of you were around to, to watch. But... Uh, Knowing is half the battle, right? That's what they used to say. I wanted to be an army guy. The next thing I wanted to be, I wanted to be a policeman. Why did I want to be a policeman? Because a policeman could carry a gun also and arrest the bad guys and put them in jail. So that's what I wanted to be. And then I started playing sports, and so then I wanted to be a baseball player. And I would dress up for Halloween like Bo Jackson, and I would go out in my Royals uniform, and I would be a baseball player. And that's what I wanted to be. I was planning. I was going, you know what? I'm going to win the World Series 13 times in a row, and I'm going to be the greatest player that's ever walked the face of the planet. Those were my plans. Those were my dreams. If you asked me when I was seven years old, it's literally what I thought was going to happen. And then a, a, a season changes, and it's basketball season. Then I wanted to be a basketball player because I had no clue what genetics means. And uh, I, I thought, you know what? It's all right. I'm going to be, Muggsy Bogues was short too, and I, I, I was just it was, it was not going to happen. But in my mind, I was going to be that guy, right? I was going to play basketball. Even, even in junior high, I got cut from my junior high basketball team. And I thought to myself, it's okay. Michael Jordan got cut from his junior high basketball team. I've got time, right? I'm going to bounce back just like MJ. You know, later on, I, I, I dabbled in, in football. Again, not understanding genetics, thinking that that was in my future. And uh, again, then I was going to go on and, and play football. And I was going to do great things on the football field. Later, it was a, a, a soccer player, a pastor eventually, right? And that's where I ended up. But with each of those things, as I was going through and as I was younger, as I was little, if you came up to me, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Man, I, I had that in mind. Like, there was no question in my mind. This was my, my plan. My plan was I was going to be whatever it was that I wanted to be at that time. Right now, if you go to my son, Luke, and you ask him, hey, Luke, what do you want to be when you grow up? Luke is three. Luke will look at you and he'll be like, you know what? I want to make coffee for people when I grow up. So that's his dream. His dream is to be a barista. You know, we're, we're starting small and praying that he uh, exceeds expectations, especially his own expectations. But if you ask him, he's thinking to himself, you know what? That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a barista. That's his plan. He wants to do that because he enjoys people and he likes making people happy. And he thinks mommy and daddy are happy when they get coffee. So you know what? I'm going to make coffee for people because that's going to make people happy. Y'all, the reality is none of us know when we're little what we're going to be when we get older. None of us know as we're making all these plans as little kids, as elementary school students and, and younger, or even when we get into middle school and even in high school, we, we begin to dream and we get, begin to entertain these thoughts and we begin to think, you know, it would be awesome to do this or to be this or to, to, uh, to discover this or play this or whatever it may be. And we, we have all these plans that we begin to put in place in our mind, but none of us really understands what we're going to end up being. And the older we get, the more we understand that. One of the first lessons that we learn in life is that plans change. Future is not something that, that we have a firm grasp on, that we can claim to know, that we can bank on. And because of that, our plans change. Now, does that mean that we don't plan? No, that doesn't mean that we don't plan. It just means that we need to plan loosely, trusting that the Lord is sovereign over our plans. We need to submit our plans to God. We need to take our desires, our will to God and say, God, look, here's what my desire is, but I'm going to say what my Savior said, and that is not my will, but your will be done. 
In James chapter 4, we're coming to this section on what it looks like to plan in a way that's godly and biblical. How we should think about our future in a way that pleases the Lord. How the cross-applied life plans for what's ahead in life. We pick up, let's do that in verse 13. James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Let me bring this into our modern vernacular and what you guys might be saying that would be similar to this. Maybe it's, you know what, next year I'm going to transfer to Biola. Next year I'm going to transfer to Cal State Long Beach. Next year I'm going to transfer to Cal State Fullerton. And I'm going to study engineering. I'm going to study architecture. I'm going to study interior design. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my degree and I'm going to graduate. I'm going to go out and get a job. Or maybe it's, you know what, I'm, I'm going to get married and I'm going to have three kids. Or five. And you think to yourself, that that's my plan. That's what I'm going to do. I am going to get married. I'm going to have my family. This is where I'm going to live and I'm going to raise my kids this way. Or maybe you say, you know what, next year I'm going to go study abroad as part of my uh, education. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go study in Italy. I'm going to go study in France. I'm going to go study in Israel. I'm, I'm studying abroad next year. Or maybe you even say something as simple as this. Hey, you know what? Next week I'm going to go see this concert. See, that's, that's what's going on in this conversation. It's a, a conversation that I'm sure James had overheard, that James had encountered many times, and he's throwing this scenario out there, and it's these two people that are saying, or, or more than two, and he's saying, look, you who are out there, and you're, you're talking together, and you're saying, look, today or tomorrow, one of these days, we're going to go to such and such a town, and we're going to spend a year there, and we're going to trade, we're going to employ our business there, and we're going to end up making a profit, and it's going to be awesome. And they're planning. In verse 13, these plans, they're being made without any concern or consultation of the Lord. They're just plans that are being made and assumed as though they're going to happen without question. And there's a lot that they're assuming in these plans, just like there's a lot that we're assuming when we say, hey, you know what, next year I'm going to go study abroad in France. One of the things that they're assuming is timing. When they say, hey, today or tomorrow we're going to go, they're assuming that their timing is God's timing. That what they want to go do in the time frame that they want to go do, it matches up with what God wants for them. They're also assuming a location. When they say, hey, we're going to go to such and such a town. Hey, next year I'm going to transfer. We're assuming timing next year. Next year I'm going to transfer to Biola up in La Mirada, one of the armpits of the, the entire state of California. I'm sorry if you like Biola and La Mirada, but it's atrocious, right? The five splits and narrows down there, it's just it's nightmare. But you're assuming a location. Next year time, I'm going to transfer location to Biola. But they're assuming more than that. Duration. We're going to go there. We're going to spend a year there is what they say. I'm going to transfer to Biola for the last two years of my degree program. We're again assuming a time frame. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there for two years. I'm going to finish out my degree in two years. And then they're assuming their activity. We'll, we'll be there and, and we'll, we'll employ our, our trade we're going to do business while we're there, and we're going to have that, that be our activity. So you say, you know what, I'm going to transfer, I'm going to go to Biola, and I'm going to study business while I'm there. Again, you're assuming your activity, you're assuming the content, you're assuming what you're going to be doing when you're doing there, and then finally they say, and we're going to make a profit, and that is they're assuming success. So something that's, that's innocent on the surface, you look at that, and you, you read that opening verse, come now, you say today and tomorrow, or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, and you think, well, that seems... That seems pretty innocent in and of itself. 
Or maybe somebody says to you, hey, you know what, next year I'm planning on, on transferring out of Saddleback and I'm going to end up at Biola and I'm going to pursue a business degree at Biola for the next two years. And you think, you know what, that's, that's pretty innocent on the surface. But the problem is, again, is we so often make these assume, assumptions and, and we assume the outcomes of things without praying, with, without considering God's will in the equation. And even though something may seem like a small matter to us, like the one I said at the, at the end there, that, that, hey, next week I'm going to go to this concert. And you may think, well, that's no big deal. That's a small matter. But to God, it's not a small matter. It's something that matters greatly to him. Because the reality is that we serve and we worship and we live under a sovereign God who is sovereign over everything. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. There's nothing. There's not one square inch of creation over which he does not say, mine. And he is our Lord. He is our master. He is our our sovereign God. He gives us the breath that we breathe. The breath that you need to make it through the next five seconds of your life, God gives to you. The fact that your heart is pumping the way it's pumping right now is because God is sustaining you in Christ. And so when we assume things without consulting God, it's it's a dangerous position that we put ourselves in. And in fact, it's something that we all need to be cautious of. Point number one tonight is this, beware of planning without God. Beware of planning without God. Some of you who are married can relate to this, but if you go home and you've got all these grandiose plans, you've got all these things that you've planned without consulting your, your wife or your husband first, that's not necessarily going to go well, is it? Even surprises sometimes can, can go sour and go south if you're not keeping your, your spouse in, in the, the light at least enough that they know what's going on. But if I was to, to go home to Amanda and say, hey, you know what, pack your bags because we're moving to Irvine. I bought a, a, a condo up there. She would look at me and say, excuse me, what, what did you do? Why would you not have talked to me about that? If that's a decision that I need to talk to her about, right? How much more should I be talking to the God of all creation about decisions that I'm making in my life on a daily basis? There's this, this danger because what, what we're doing when we make these plans without consulting God is what we're falling into is the trap of, of a subtle form of pride that we don't often think of as pride. But James has been dealing with pride so much in chapter four especially talking about our our arrogance, talking about our pridefulness, talking about our judging other people. In fact, this isn't just chapter four, this is chapter three with the way that we use our words, right? And tearing down other people's to build ourselves up. This is also back in chapter two of showing preference to some people and over other people. Humility is such an important thing for us as we're trying to live out the cross applied life. And, And so James is going after pride and rooting it out for us. And there's another way that we can fall into the trap of pride. And that's when we plan without consulting God. When we give lip service to the sovereignty of God. When we sit here and we go, well, yes, I understand that doctrinally God is sovereign. I understand that he is in control of all things. I understand that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I get that biblically. But then when we plan, we plan under under the the delusion of self-control that we control the outcome of our lives, that we are the captain of our ship and the master of our fates. And so we say one thing, but we live out a different thing. And James is saying, we can't do that because we are disregarding God, the sovereign God, some of the risks of planning without God. Number one, you might get what you ask for. You may actually get the plans that you want. And you say, well, why is that a bad thing? Because it may be that God had something better in store for you if you had come to him, but rather than coming to him, you plan on your own. And part of God's discipline in your life, right, is, is to 
turn you over to the desires of your heart. And so you plan without God and God says, okay, fine, have this. And that's not a place that you want to be. Second, you may have those plans fall through and have no backup. If these are plans that God is, is ultimately, and you are a follower of Christ, you are his son, you are his daughter, and he is looking at the plans that you have for your life, and he is saying, this is not what is good for you, this is not what I have for you, and he puts an end to those plans. If you're not walking with the Lord, if you're not con- consulting the Lord regularly, if you're planning without God, you're going to have no backup, and your plans are going to have fallen through, and you're going to sit there and say, which way is up, where do I go from here? Third, when we plan without God, we risk angering God. Angering him, right? Again, if I came home and told my wife, hey, pack your bags because I just bought us a condo in Irvine, she's going to not be happy about that. Guys, God wants you to submit to him. He wants you to, to seek his will as you plan your life, as you make your own plans. Fourth, you run the risk of just walking in disobedience to God walking in disobedience. We don't want to be in, in a, a state of hostility to the Lord. We want to make sure that we are in step with the Lord. And fifth, I already mentioned it earlier, but you invite the Lord's discipline in your life. When you don't consult him, when you don't seek his will for the plans that you're making for your life, you're inv- inviting his hand of discipline in your life. And that's not a, a fun thing to, to suffer under. Consider this. Consider if, if Joshua were to come home from school one day and tell, inform my wife and I, hey, you know what, I, I, made a, I made plans to go play with Jim Bob because there's a Jim Bob at a school because we live in Alabama. Um, I made plans to go play with Jim Bob, so we're going to go do that. And Amanda and I are like, no, you, you're not going to do that. That's not what's good for you right now. That's not lining up with what the, the plans are for the family. So no, that's one thing that we could do, right? Is just flat out tell him no. A second scenario is we could say yes and let him go do that knowing that he would be missing out on something better. Okay, fine. You go hang out with Jim Bob's family at the park down the street, but we're taking the rest of the family to Disneyland. Well, I want to go to Disneyland. Sorry, dude. No, you're not going to go to Disneyland because you made your plans on your own apart from consulting us. And so you go enjoy what you want to do and miss out on what would have been better had you been patient and consulted us first. Another scenario maybe is Joshua comes home, says, hey, I've got this this plan. I'm going to go play with my friend. And we look at him and we go, no. And he goes upstairs and pops open his window and his screen and climbs out the screen and, and shimmies down the, the roof of the house and goes and, and sneaks out and goes to play with him anyways. Well, then when we find out, that's going to be a problem, right? But the other danger is that he as a 10-year-old boy has now put himself in a dangerous situation by not walking in accordance with the will of his mom and dad, right? And then finally, he could disobey us sneak out, find himself in that dangerous situation, and then on top of that, be at odds with Amanda and I when we find him and lose privileges for the rest of his known existence, right? So that's just a a way to kind of illustrate, guys, what happens when we plan without consulting the Lord. The different responses, the different ways that we might respond to what God does in our life. When God says no to a plan in our life, how we might react to that. Sometimes we can act like that 10-year-old to the Lord when we should be far past that. Seeking God's will is not something that you can kind of just say, okay, yeah, I get it. God's sovereign, so aren't I covered on that? Like, do you guys ever remember playing tag when you were growing up and the, the force field kid? Do you, know, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? 
like the kid that you've got dead to rights and you finally chase him down and you just tag him and it's just a strong, firm tag. Not like a smack in the lower back or anything, but just a good tag. And he's like, dude, force field, I'm, you can't get me. I've got a, I've, I called it. At the beginning of the game, I called force field. It applies forever. Force field, you can't tag me. God, there's, guys, there's, there's, there's no sovereignty force field for us as believers. You can't just say, well, I go to a church that believes in the sovereignty of God, so isn't it just assumed that I believe in the sovereignty of God as I'm making plans? Isn't it enough that I've, that I've acknowledged before once, before in my prayer life, that, that God, you're sovereign and you control all things and I want your will to be done in my life? I prayed that once, so th- doesn't that just apply forever now? It, it doesn't. It needs to be a daily thing that we, as we navigate our days, as we navigate our lives, are taking our lives and we are submitting them to God and to his will for us because he is sovereign. And when we don't, again, it's, it's that subtle pride that's creeping up in our lives that say, that, says that, that I know better than God does. James exposes the, the futility of this, though, in verse 14, by revealing the fact that, that we are not the creator, but we are the, the creature. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, you know, you're making these plans. I'm going to go to Biola next year, and I'm going to transfer, in, and I'm going to be a business major, and it's going to be great, and I'm going to graduate, and I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, great. I'm going to be living on easy street. James says, but you do not know, verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Man, James, James again, just tells it like it is, doesn't he? Again, you're, you don't have a whole lot of health, wealth, and prosperity preachers preaching the book of James because he, j- he doesn't pull punches. He just lays it out for you. When he says, look, your life, you're a vapor. You're a mist. It's, it's getting colder out, although it was 90 today because we live in an ungodly culture and society and God's hand of discipline is upon us. But we, it's, it's getting colder slowly, which is what it should be. And so you're going to get those hot beverages, right? Coffee, hot chocolate, whatever. And you're going to walk outside. And when you walk outside, you're going to see something coming up out of the little mouth hole on that cup of coffee, aren't you? What is that? It's vapor. And how long does that last there in the air? A couple seconds, maybe. Consider the time that you entertain that side of vapor in the 24 hours of your day. And how much impact does that vapor make on your life throughout your day? You don't go to class and be like, dude, I had the most awesome cup of coffee, but let me tell you about the vapor that was coming out of the top of the cup. It was the coolest vapor I've ever seen in my life. It was the best two seconds I've ever experienced ever because of the vapor that was coming up out of the cup. It was better than any vapor than I've ever seen before. No, it doesn't register with you, right? Y'all, that's James's point about us. Your life he says, is a mist. It's a vapor coming off the hot cup of coffee. It's there and it's gone. And he goes, you don't even know what tomorrow's gonna bring. I'm reminded a little bit when I read this, it, you know, just being put in our, our place in a little uncomfortably, maybe a little painfully there, of Job chapter 38. After Job is gone and after his, his friends have gone, and now it's God's turn. And in Job 38, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. So Job has been complaining, right? 
And we can sympathize with Job. And we can empathize with Job. We can look and go, man, this guy lost everything. And by God's own testimony at the beginning of the book, he was a righteous man, unlike any other that was living during his time. Job was doing it well. He was living well. He was following God. He was a a righteous man. And he lost everything. And then he had these counselors that came up and they were sitting with him going, Job, clearly you've done something. What have you done? God wouldn't do this for no reason. You've sinned somewhere. Confess your sin. Repent from your sin and God will have mercy on you. And Job's going, I'm not covering up anything. By my integrity, I have done nothing wrong. And he finally gets to the place where he grows impatient with God. And then God responds to him in Job 38. And he does so by putting him back in his place, just like James put us in our place. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? It must have been staggering. In fact, we know it was for Job. Because after God starts with his first act of, hey, Job, where were you when? Job says later in the book, he says, man, I'm going to just put my hand over my mouth and I'm going to shut up, God. Because I realize, I, I get it. You're God, you're sovereign, I'm not. You know I don't. We need the same reminders, guys, that we're not in control of our lives. That our lives are but a mist, that we don't even know what tomorrow is gonna bring, let alone are we able to control it. Second point tonight is this, be aware of your own frailty. Be aware of your own frailty. This is so important for us as we're considering our future, as we wanna plan for our future in a way that God wants us to. As we want to think about our our future in the cross-applied life, as we want to think about how should the gospel impact our future, guys, we need to keep in mind our own frailty. And y'all, for as long as mankind has been around, this has been something that mankind has been forgetting. And this has been Satan's playground with us. In the Garden of Eden, you remember what happened there? Satan embodies the snake and goes up to Eve and says to Eve, hey, did God really say? And, and, and Eve's sitting there going, well, he said, yeah, we're not supposed to do. And there's no doubt that, that Eve heard God because she even adds something to what God said. God said, don't eat from it. Eve goes, we're not supposed to eat from it or even what? Touch it or we're dead. And Satan goes after the fact that she doesn't like her frailty because he says, you know what? You're not gonna die. He says, God doesn't want you to eat that. You know Why? Because God doesn't want you to be like him. God wants all the glory and power for himself. He wants to keep you weak and low and, and he wants to keep you frail. But if you eat that, you'll be like God. You're gonna know good from evil, Eve. And look, it's beautiful, it's good for food. See, we've forever been a a people who don't like being reminded of our frailty. And yet the fact that we are the creature and not the creator means that that is part of who we are. We are finite. We are limited. We are frail. By contrast to the Lord. There's a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. In Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21, this, this farmer goes out and he plants his crops and he has a banner year on his crops. And he's like, man, this is great. And he takes the crops and he builds storehouses and his, his storehouses are like bursting at the seams. And he's like, sweet, I need to be, build bigger storehouses. So he builds bigger storehouses and he, he stores all that up and he's, he's 
boasting and he's comfortable and he's putting all of his confidence in his future that he thinks is so secure because he's looking at his, his wealth and he's going, look at how much I have. I'm good to go. Nothing can touch me. And in the parable, the message is delivered to him and it's this way. It says, you fool. This very night, your life is going to be required of you. And none of that stuff that are in the storehouses that you have are going to matter at all. You can't buy your way out of your frailty. You can't educate your way out of your frailty. You can't ignore the reality of your frailty and just have it disappear. It is part of who you are. There is a day marked, a day appointed by God, which is the day where you will breathe your last here on this planet. And you cannot escape it. Our frailty, the first thing it it reveals to us is the limits of our knowledge. Our frailty reveals the the limits of our knowledge. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have, have had plans change suddenly without warning? Yeah. How many of you are in a different place today than you thought you would be three years ago? How many of you are in a different place today than you thought you would be two years ago? Different place today than you thought you would be one year ago? Six months ago? Okay. I mean, we could keep going down and I think the hands would still go up, right? I mean, we understand that, that our plans change. And some of you are sitting here going, man, thank God that I'm not where I thought I was going to be three years ago. Others of you are sitting here going, man, it was really hard for me to have to adjust my plans and it's still hard for me to think that I'm not where I thought I was going to be three years ago. But what the, the, either of those sides reveals is that you can't control your life. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, is the way that James puts it. Does that mean it's wrong to plan? No. No, again, it does not mean that it's wrong to plan. But in making our plans, we have to do so knowing that God could change them at any time if he wants to change them. And it's not that God is capricious going, well, yeah, let me just let them run out on their plans and then I'm going to do this and it's going to screw everything up. No, it's, it's that God's will is always going to be done no matter what. And if your plans are not in line with his will, then your plans are not going to come to fruition. And so that's why we need to constantly, as we plan, be making sure that we are submitting our plans to God's will. Why? Because we have limits in our knowledge and in our understanding. The second element of our, our frailty is that we're not even, again, guaranteed to be here tomorrow. We're making plans for two years from now. We're making plans for 10 years from now. We're making plans for six weeks from now. But the reality is, guys, we need to, to plan knowing that, God, you could take me home tonight. Psalm chapter 90. Psalm 90, verses 10 through 12. Psalm 90, 10 through 12, verse 10 says, The years of our life are 70, or maybe by strength, 80. In other words, he's saying, we're going to live like to be 70, maybe if you're, you're healthy and strong, 80. He says, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers, verse 11, the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, verse 12, Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days, to be mindful of our end as we live in the present. That is what the, psalm, what the psalmist is, is saying is, is the key to wisdom. 
In fact, guys, that's our next study in the spring is going to be the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's what that whole book is about. It's about living your life in light of your death. And that's kind of Solomon's drive in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's not like you've got bad Solomon who's building all these things and getting all these possessions and then good Solomon at the end of the book. No, it's, it's you've got Solomon who is leading us on this journey through the book of going, you know what, if, if we're living for all of these things without the, the awareness and the knowledge of our death and what that means for us in light of eternity, then all of this is vain and meaningless and pointless. But we can enjoy these things rightly if we will live and pursue them in light of our death and what that means for us in light of eternity. And so as we think about our own finitude and our own limits, we need to live as frail men and women, uh, understanding that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. This requires humility, doesn't it? Because we don't want to think about that. We don't want to think about death. You don't want to think about death. You're in your 20s. You're in your early 20s. Some of you are sitting out there going, man, I don't want to think about death and I don't want to think about Christ coming back because I'm not married yet. I don't have kids yet. I haven't graduated yet. I don't have the job I want yet. Let me get those things. Then God, then you can come back. But we need to understand that as the psalmist says, as James says, we are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The third element of our frailty is our dependence, that we are a needy people. Think about your average day, right? You wake up in the morning. How much conscious control did you have in opening your eyes? You know what the psalmist said? I lay down and slept. I awoke. Why? Because the Lord sustained me. He's right. You wake up in the morning because God wakes you up in the morning. It's not your alarm clock. It's God. Think about getting out of bed. How much conscious control of your brain, probably not much at, at early morning stages, of swinging your legs over the bed, standing up, stumbling to the bathroom, brushing your teeth, hopefully first thing in the morning. You know, getting your cup of coffee. I mean, these are all things that we do and we take them for granted, but how many things are happening in your body to make you do that that you're not even aware of that only happen because God is sustaining that? See, you are a frail person, you are a weak person, and God needs to sustain those things for them to happen. The fact that you are sitting here understanding the words that are coming out of my mouth is because God is controlling the synapses in your brain to fire in such a way that you hear and you understand, and then you choose to move the pen and write it down on the paper. Why? Because God is controlling the the brain functionality that allows your fingers to move that way to write down words. The fact that you are spelling words correctly has nothing to do with your third grade teacher. It has everything to do with your God-designed brain that retains information the way it does. Why? Because he designed you that way and he sustains your brain to be able to continue to retain that information. You see guys, there is nothing that we do that is not ultimately traceable back to God's grace in our lives. We are a dependent people. Breathing. Even out of breathing, you depend on God. And so as we plan, we have to keep that frailty in mind. And one of the things by application that I want to encourage you to do then is as you're planning for things and as you're thinking about things, if there are things that you can do today and not put off to tomorrow, do them today because you may not have tomorrow. Relationally, if there are relationships that need to be mended, mend them tonight because you may not have tomorrow. They may not have tomorrow. 
spiritually. If you need to get right with the Lord, if you have sin that you need to confess, that you need to repent of, do that tonight. Because again, you may not have tomorrow. Physically, if there are things that you need to do, do them today because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. We can't bank on our plans for tomorrow. James again goes after the problem in verse 16, the the root of this. I know I skipped over 15. We'll come back to that. Verse 16, he says, as it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance. Again, he's saying this is an issue of pride. When we forget our frailty, it's because we are boasting in our arrogance. And all such boasting, he says, is evil. It's sinful. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. In this context, the right thing to do is to bring our plans in submission to God. We do have a corrective in this passage. Okay, so how should I plan then? You've been telling me it's not wrong to plan. Okay, so then how do I plan? Verse 15, James says, instead, instead of making these plans and not taking God into consideration, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will, what's the first thing he says? If the Lord wills, we will what? Live. Again, the basic fundamental reality of your existence is totally 100% dependent on God. So you can take every probiotic out there, you can run every day of your life, you can only eat grass-fed everything, and the reality is you will die on the day that God has sovereignly appointed for you to die, period, end of story. And he may not take you out with your health, he may take you out with a bus, but you cannot escape death, and you will only live as long as he wills for you to live. And so we need to understand that. If he wills, we will live, and then he says, and do this or that. Lord willing, right? We say that. Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. It's, it's this kitsch thing. It's this, this thing we, we toss on to the end of our sentences. But Paul did it. Acts 18, 21. On taking leave of them, Acts 18, 21. Taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from them from Ephesus. Paul was saying, look, I'll come back if God wills. He's modeling what James is talking about. Romans 1.10, again, the Apostle Paul. Paul saying, look, I, I always remember you in my prayers, and I ask that somehow, by God's will, there it is, by God's will, that I may now at last succeed in coming to you. James is, or Paul is saying, look, I want to come visit you. But he doesn't say, you know what, I'm planning on coming to visit you in the next couple of years. I'm planning on coming to visit you in the next few months. No, he says, look, if, if God allows for it, if God wills, I, I, I want to come visit, visit you. I want to come be with you. I want to come see you. And then one more, 1 Corinthians 4.19. 1 Corinthians 4.19, Paul is telling the Corinthian believers, he says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. But he's, he's saying, look, I'm gonna come to you soon. And Paul could have left that there and been like, hey, you know what, I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna see what's going on with these people that, that are, are boasting in their arrogance. So I'll, I'll, I'll be there soon. And he could have just said that. And nobody would have accused Paul of not having faith in God's sovereignty, right? After all, this is the guy that wrote Romans. It's like, okay, Paul, you get a green light. You get the force field on God's sovereignty law. Like, you're good to go. But even Paul was still mindful as he was making these plans and writing about them to the people that he was sending these letters to, to to say, look, I'm going to do this as long as it's in line with God's will. And, And guys, Paul meant that. This wasn't just a cliche thing that he was throwing out there. 
And it's something that, that, that we need to do as well. Because the only way that your plans will come to fruition is if God wills that they come to fruition. The reality is, guys, that God does exist, that God is sovereign, that he is control, and that his will will be done. And so our third and final point tonight is this, plan like that, plan like God exists. Like he exists and he is who he says he is, right? Too often we, we give, again, this lip service to that God is sovereign, but we don't live it that way. And it's, it's just as foolish to do that as for me to sit here and tell you how much I believe in gravity and then to go to the top of the building and step off. And you would say, well, that's idiotic. And I'd say, yes, it is. Why? Because you would look at me and go, clearly you don't actually believe in gravity because you just stepped off of a building. And so as you're on the way to the, the hospital in the emergency, in the ambulance, have somebody clue you in on what gravity really is. But y'all, when we plan in our life without acknowledging God's will, without submitting to God's will, it's just as idiotic as stepping off of a building telling everybody around us that, hey, I believe in gravity on our way down. You can sit here and you can say, I believe in God's sovereignty, but if you plan like you don't believe in God's sovereignty, if you plan without giving credit to God and and without submitting to his will, without seeking his will, then you don't actually believe in God's sovereignty. You believe in your sovereignty. Your theology needs to impact your planning. Genesis 1.1, what does it say? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning what? God created the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God created everything. Yes? That means God has control over everything. If I build a Lego town, I can destroy the Lego town if I want to destroy the Lego town, can't I? Why? Because I built it. It's mine. They're subject to me. God created everything and we are subject to him and so our plans are subject to him. Isaiah 40, verses 21 through 23. Isaiah 40, 21 through 23. God rules over everything. Not only Genesis 1-1 that he created everything, but, but Isaiah 40, God rules over everything. This is the one where he's saying, hey, the, the, the nations, they're a drop in the bucket to me. And he says, Man, mankind, they're, they're like grasshoppers to me. God is so much bigger, so much more powerful than we are. So much mightier than we are. And so we need to submit our plans to him. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Deuteronomy 32, 39. This one is sobering. It says, God kills and God makes alive. God kills and God makes alive. Again, you have a day that's appointed for you. I have a day that's appointed for me that's gonna be my last day. And God is sovereign over that day. So I need to subject my plans to him. How do I do this? How do I plan like God exists? Number one, pray as you plan. You're thinking, I wanna go do this. I wanna transfer to Biola and and pursue a business degree, which is fine, by the way. I'm not trying to beat up on transferring to Biola. It's just the, the analogy. I want to go do that. Great. That's good. But, pl- but pray as you are making those plans. And how do you pray as you're making those plans? God, if this is not your will, stop me. If this is your will, God, bring people into my life that are going to confirm that. That when I uh, share my plans of, of what I want to do with somebody, that they're not going to look at me and go, seriously, you're going to go do that? I don't think that's wise. But they're going to go, yeah, I see that. That's great. Go do that. Pray for God to do that. Pray as you plan. Second, admit your limitations as you plan. And that's part of your prayers too. God, I recognize that I am frail, that I am limited, that I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I just want to come to you right now because I would like if, if 
this is part of your will. If this is your will for me, God, this is what I would like to do. Again, you're coming with humility then. You're admitting your weakness, your frailty as you bring your plans to the Lord. Third, ask God for wisdom as you plan. James has already talked about this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all who ask. Ask God for wisdom to know how to move forward and what plans to make. Sometimes, and some of you may be there right now, you're looking at a plan where you're at the fork in the road and you're saying, I don't know what plan to make moving forward from here. Pray for discernment from the Lord. Pray for wisdom from the Lord in making that plan. Lean on him and not your own understanding. I think that's a a Bible verse or something like that. Fourth, evaluate your plans by God's word as you plan. Evaluate your plans by God's word as you plan. And not just your plans, but also your heart behind your plans. Because it may be that, yes, your plans are sinful. And so when you see that your plans are sinful by holding them up to God's word, that means that that's not God's will for you, right? But it may also be that your plans are fine and your plans are good and your plans are not sinful, but your motives behind your plans might be. And so evaluate, pray that God would expose any sinful motives behind that. And then finally, don't idolize your plans. Don't idolize your plans. In other words, don't make this like, if this doesn't happen, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be wrecked. I'm gonna be devastated. This is gonna be the worst thing ever. I will never recover if this does not happen. If that's where you're at, then your plans have become an idol. Proverbs 16, three. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit your work, commit your desires, commit your plans to the Lord and your plans will be established. You were created for a purpose. What's that purpose that you were created for? To do what? Yeah, I think I heard it. You guys can talk, right? It's all right, we're we're friends here, we're family. To glorify God, yes? Yes? Yes. To glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? That's, that's why you and I were created. Well, as you plan, you are still called in your plans to glorify God. In fact, your plans, your seeking God's will should be an extension of your worship of him. Romans 12. Romans 12, one through two. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice the submission language there. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. So part of your worship to God is submitting to him and seeking his will in your life is what Paul is saying there. And so as you plan and submit your plans like God exists, you are worshiping God by your planning that way. Ephesians 6, 6, similarly, Paul says, you know, I'm not looking for the applause from many. He says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but we need to be bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Again, that's, a, that's an extension of our worship is to do the will of God. So when I plan, I want to plan to do the will of God. What happens when we knowingly resist God's will in our lives? You guys heard of a guy named Jonah? Hey, go to Tarshish or go, go to, to, to uh, not Tarshish. That's where he wanted to go. Go to Nineveh. Thank you. Go to Nineveh. 
in Jonah chapter 1, it says he went away from, away from, away from Nineveh, and he went towards Tarshish, and Tarshish is over here, and Nineveh is over here. It's the opposite direction, and Jonah's like, sweet, my will is I'm not going to Nineveh, God. And God says, actually, you are going to go to Nineveh. And the Lord hurls, it says in the book, a strong storm on the sea. Strong enough that these sailors are panicking and they're waking everybody up because they realize there's something supernatural going on with this storm. And they say, look, whose fault is this? And they begin to cast lots and the lots divinely because God is sovereign fall to Jonah. And they say, Jonah, what did you do? And Jonah's like, dude, this is my fault. This is my bad. I'm sorry about the the, the waves and everybody freaking out and, and dying and stuff. Look, God wants me to go to Nineveh. I don't want to go to Nineveh because I, I don't love people is, is really the gist of it. So um, rather than roll back to shore and let me be submissive and obedient to God, here's what I want you to do, guys. Throw me in the water and kill me. See, we like to paint Jonah as this heroic figure by having the sailors throw him overboard. No, he was trying to commit suicide so that he could avoid God's will for his life, which was to go to Nineveh. See how much he's running from God? And yet God's will is still going to be done, isn't it? Because God then, Jonah's in the water, and he's sinking down, and he's by all the seaweed and everything else, and he's going, you know what, on second thought, maybe Nineveh's not a bad place because my lungs are about to fill with water, I'm going to have a crushing and horrible death. And so he prays in Jonah chapter 2. And because God is a God of mercy and grace and compassion, even on a guy like Jonah who's running from him, God says, hey, big fish, come along, whale, whatever you want it to be. Hey, come along. It It was real, just believe that. It's, it's like the plant. People are like, what kind of, who cares? It's a godfish. It swallowed Jonah. So the fish comes up, swallows Jonah, blows all its water out of his blowhole so that Jonah is, is sitting in a soppy, gross belly of a, of a gigantic fish. And he's there for three days and three nights. And, and he has a, a extended quiet time with God during that time. And he's in, in the muck and in the grossness. And he's finally like, okay, God, I, all right, I'm in. I mean, I'll submit to your will. And God tells the fish to go puke Jonah up onto the beach. And so Jonah gets up on the beach and he's like, you know what? There, it, I, my life can only go up from here. I just got thrown up onto the beach by a fish. I, I, I can't get lower than this. And he finally sort of submits to God's will to go to Nineveh. And he goes to Nineveh and he goes in and he cries out to everybody, which is what God told him to do. Hey, repent or you're going to die. God's judgment is going to come after you. And the Ninevites listen to him. And they submit to, to, to God and they repent. The, the king gets down off his throne and sits in a pile of ashes and puts on sackcloth, which is a symbol of mourning. And all the people do the same. And they even put sackcloth on the animals, right? Like they're going full blown. Okay, God, we were wrong. You were right. And Jonah, rather than rejoicing in God's will being done, gets angry again. And he goes out of the city and he sits down outside the city walls and he goes, God, kill me. If this is what this world is like, where you're merciful to people like the Ninevites, I don't even want to live anymore. Just kill me. And God causes this plant to grow up over Jonah and shade him because it was hot. And Jonah's thankful for the plant for the day. But then God sends a worm and the worm comes in and the worm destroys the plant and the plant dies and and Jonah gets angry again and he, he tells God to kill him again. And God shows up and says, Jonah, 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 Jonah. Because you care more about a plant that you did nothing for than you care about all the souls in the city. See, that's the picture, that petulance, right? People want to paint Jonah as, as a heroic figure. And I don't know what happened after that. I, I, we don't have the rest of the story. But dude, and it's okay. Jonah, I know you're in the room. Jonah Francisco, where you at, bro? Dude, my name's Peter. It's, it's after the, the foot-shaped disciple, right? The, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. So I get you. I feel your pain. But... But Jonah, like, 
he, he missed it. And God was going after Jonah because what Jonah wanted was Jonah's will to be done, not God's will to be done. So guys, we need to make sure that we're not ending up sitting outside of a city angry that a, a worm ate our shade plant when God is saying there's so much bigger, more important things going on that you're missing because you're resistant to my will. That's what happens when we resist God's will. Living the cross applied life is submitting your will, your desires, your plans to the Lord. Why? Because again, we are the creature, not the creator. We are finite. We are limited. We don't know better. God does. And God wants us to bring our plans, our wills, our desires to him and submit them to him. Guys, it was, it was foolish of me to think as a middle school kid that I had a future in basketball. It's ridiculous of me to think that. Absolutely idiotic. But it's equally foolish for us to make plans without consulting God. For anything. A concert next week. To assume that that's guaranteed any more than, than I assumed that a basketball career was guaranteed for me when I was 12. It's equally as foolish, guys. We need the humility to submit our wills to the Lord's will and make sure that we are not just saying, hey, Lord willing, as some cliche phrase that we throw out there, but we're saying that because that's what we're actually praying for. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this. Thank you for this text. Thank you for your will that is done, that is good. Thank you that your will is kind and compassionate and gracious and merciful to us. Thank you that you are patient with us, God. Lord, I pray that we would be quick to plan in light of you, in light of your sovereignty, in light of your goodness, in light of your kindness, in light of your will. Lord, may we be ready and quick to, to let go of plans that we find that aren't according to your will, that run uh, contrary to what your will is. And Lord, may we be able to accomplish far more by being submissive to you than we would if we were disobedient to you. Lord, we know that there's a day coming when all of us will breathe our last on this planet. And none of us know when that day is. And thank God we don't know when that day is. Lord, thank you that that is a mystery to us. And yet, Lord, we know that day will, will come. And we can't control that. In the meantime, help us to, to just live faithful to you obedient to you, submissive to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.